0: This week on the Discover the Word podcast, Bible geographer Dr. Jack Beck is with us talking about something that is on basically every page of the Bible, geography.
1: Bible geography is more than getting it right on the map. It's understanding how the biblical authors and poets are using geography to communicate the thoughts of God to us. And if we go
0: there, we'll see things we haven't seen before in Scripture. And this week, Jack is focusing in on the Gospel of John and pointing us toward five. Geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. Jack has made it his mission to make geography meaningful to us as we read and study the Bible. And because he does this in such a winsome and fascinating way, well, he's easily one of our favorite guests here on Discover the Word. And so pull your chair up to the table and let's get started on some conversations on the impact place has on our understanding of the scriptures.
1: Five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. I love digging into these
0: place stories. And it is great to have you here for another hour or so of studying the Bible together on the Discover the Word podcast. Regular group members, Bill Crowder and Elisa Morgan and Daniel Ryan Day are going to be having a conversation with Dr. Jack Beck. Now, Jack is a scholar and educator with extensive experience in the area of biblical geography. He is currently an adjunct faculty member at Jerusalem University College in Israel and has been working with us here at Our Daily Bread Ministries on books and videos that in many ways take us to the geographical locations that are so central to understanding the message of the Bible, because location always is a factor. Every story, including the story of your life, is a different story if it takes place in a different place. And so there is geography on basically every page of the Bible. It's not trivia, but an important component that we need to pay attention to. So let's explore five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus with our friend, Dr. Jack Beck.
2: Today we have a friend of ours back who's been here with us before, but it's been hard to get him back on the schedule because he's always in the woods, and that's Jack Beck. So Jack, welcome back to Discover the Word.
1: Yeah, thanks, Daniel. I really enjoy being with you folks, but I enjoy being in the woods a whole lot more. So sorry, I wasn't available.
3: (laughs) You know, you're a geographical hoodoo. I don't know what you call it, but I just made that up. Uh, You know, you're all into geography and geography and scripture and popped our thinking on so many occasions.
1: Yeah, I I hope so, Lisa. I'm a Bible geographer. You're not
3: a hoodoo?
1: Not a hoodoo, (laughs) although I'll consider changing the title on my business cards if you insist. I love the outdoors, and so it seems really natural to me that I would study the outdoorness of the Bible stories that we know so well, the geographical qualities of those stories, and see what happens when we look more carefully at the way in which God has chosen to speak to us in the Word when He chooses to speak geographically.
4: So where are you going to take us this week?
1: What we're going to do this time, Bill, is we're going to take a look at five geographical firsts. John has a propensity, particularly, to put things in a in an order like that, whether they're chronological order or the order he chooses to present them. But we're going to start in Cana of Galilee, John chapter 2, verse 11.
2: I can read that for us. It'd be
1: great, Daniel. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so... John two eleven says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. <laughs> Feels like we're picking up in the middle of a story there.
1: Uh, actually, it's the end. But okay. I think it, sometimes it's mm-hmm. better to read a story from the end back to the beginning. <laughs> so now we know the punchline mm-hmm. and we've got some things that are said there. This is the first miracle that Jesus did in a place. Cana of Galilee, and we've got the outcome. His disciples believed in him. So I think it positions us to go back and read the story afresh in a way that says, okay, what's going on in John's mind here that he, he's emphasizing this story in this place? Mm-hmm. And
2: you've emphasized the firsts, and we see that word show up in this, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And in this particular case, turning the water into wine, his mom asked him to do it. Yeah. And it seems like in the text, the story that John's telling is Jesus is actually like pushing back against his mom. It's not my time yet. But then she convinces him to go ahead and do it anyway, to bring honor to the family that is hosting this wedding. And so that's the first sign, right?
1: Yeah. So let me pick up there. I think we've got an obvious problem and a not so obvious problem in this story that this miracle is addressing, right? And so the obvious one surfaces very quickly, right? I mean, what do you guys see as the obvious problem
4: the wedding's going to be spoiled if they don't have enough wine to carry on through the whole feast.
3: Yeah, because weddings lasted like a week or so, right? And the host was supposed to provide food and drink for all the guests, and we're just partway into it, and there's no wine left. And that's like a huge shame thing and lose your host here, right? Yeah, that's the obvious
1: problem. So let's not deal with that so much as the one that's not so obvious, and that has to do with where Jesus chose to do his first miracle. If I had to choose where to do my first miracle, thinking through the lens of Jesus, humbly, what yeah, well, humbly, very humbly, okay. what would be a place you might think it would be a good idea for him to drop that first miracle you know, on like, the people? Maybe
3: Jerusalem, yeah. or you know, the Mount of Olives, or you know,
1: why not go to the heartland of the Jewish faith, Judea, Jerusalem, instead of the remoteness of Galilee? And that's, I think. Exactly the point of the, the reason that Jesus goes and does it in this space. And to see it, we have to realize that the Jewish world of the first century was not monolithic we tend to homogenize it, make it all the same. Uh, But the reality is that we have a Southern Jewish identity in Judea and a Northern Jewish identity in Galilee, which are quite different from one another.
4: Do you think that has anything to do with the nature of this first miracle, or do you think that it's just that was the need and Jesus responded to it?
1: Well, I think all of Jesus' disciples were Galileans, maybe except for one. Yeah. And they had a problem that this miracle is solving. Remember what Daniel read just a moment ago? And then, as a consequence of this miracle, the Galilean disciples put their faith in him. So let me fill in a little bit of a gap there that I think can prove helpful. In the South, Judeans had the advantage of living in the region that hosted all the founding stories of the faith. Abraham and Sarah and Ruth and David places like Bethlehem and Hebron and Jerusalem there was a pride that swelled in Judeans when they thought about their historical heritage Whew. that did not in Galileans because if we look at the Galilean backstories the stories of the northern kingdom they're not the family stories that you're you're proud of these are the stories of people like Jeroboam the first who established the golden calf cult, and stories about Ahab and Jezebel, and of places like Dan and Samaria that actually blended worship of the one true God with paganism. These were not stories that you were terribly proud of. And think of then how Judeans thought about Galileans. So the people in the south thought about people in the north. Mm -hmm. They saw them as rural folk, unsophisticated, and spiritually compromised. Hmm. Hmm. And the facts on the ground in Galilee might suggest otherwise. We find Galileans sort of internalizing that criticism. Uh, They look at themselves in that same lowly fashion and way. There's a quote in the Jewish Talmud that I think is so powerful here, and that is that, that Galileans' desired honor more than wealth. Mm. The idea that they that they had internalized these criticisms of the Judeans and that they had allowed themselves to think less of themselves. And that includes Jesus' disciples.
4: Yeah, I was going to say, because that's reflected in Nathaniel's comment, can any good thing come out of Nazareth?
1: Yeah, Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And remember that Nathanael was a Galilean yeah. from a little place just north of Nazareth. So we hear in his words and his voice as well this, this sort of low expectation. Jesus needed the disciples to trust him, to have confidence in him, to think of him differently than Judeans might Encourage them to think about Jesus in this rural, unsophisticated, spiritually compromised way. That's why I think Jesus chose to do his first miracle in Galilee rather than in Judea. And the outcome, John 2 11, and the disciples believed in him.
4: Now, when it says the disciples believed in him, Jack, we know that that doesn't mean that all of a sudden. They had a full-grown, mature faith, because we know that all along they're having moments of belief versus unbelief and disbelief and all kinds of things happening. So is there anything in the word believed that gives us a hint that this was just a starting point, or is this just the word that was available to be used?
1: Yeah, I don't know that I would say there's anything in that piece of vocabulary, but certainly in the context, given the fact that this is the first miracle and given the geographic context and what we know about Galilean expectations, I think we see movement here. Not a a full-born, solid faith that we'll see eventually in them, but there's movement here. And Jesus needed them to be in a different place than they were before they made the next steps together.
2: I think that's helpful too, because if you look at chapter one, right before this story in the book of John, Jesus is calling some of those first disciples to follow him. And there's a couple comments about like, we've found the Messiah, but they have no idea at this point what that actually means that he's the Messiah. Not to mention too, there's people convincing other people that they should come follow Jesus too. And it seems like by doing this miracle in some ways, This is like the first moment maybe where they're like, oh, wow, okay, maybe we are following the Messiah, this person who's special. Maybe that's part of what belief means there too. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're looking at Galileans, which we are, we can sort of
1: position them on a a matrix of confidence. Mm -hmm. And if these guys are feeling less confident about people like themselves, they're going to feel less confident about Jesus So Jesus does a miracle in the north that moves them to Bill's point, that moves them from where they were to where Jesus needed them to be to take the next step. So when we start looking at this story, we've got two big problems. Mm -hmm. We've got wine that's run out, and that's an embarrassment, as Elisa said, for the hosts. And we've got this confidence problem in the disciples, Galilean disciples, and the
0: miracle addresses both for them say, it's all about location, location, location. And as we'll be discovering in this podcast, that's not just a slogan related to real estate. It's essential when you're reading the Bible. Well, this is the Discover the Word podcast with Bill Crowder, Elisa Morgan, Daniel Ryan Day, and Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck, finding in the Gospel of John, five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. Well, as they wrapped up that part of the conversation, they also had a couple minute after conversation about how important it is to take into account the regional differences in people in the world of the Bible. Just like in the U.S., there are big cultural differences between north and south, between the east coast and the west coast. And these differences don't necessarily always unify us. And so listen as Jack stresses with the group again just how important it is to factor this into our bible reading.
1: It's interesting, isn't it, that that human experience we tend to sometimes build ourselves up by tearing someone else down and, you know, I think that insight into the relationship between Judeans and Galileans just goes miles in our bible reading of the gospels because I'm always paying attention to who's in the audience. And if I see Galileans there, I know that Jesus is speaking to people with a certain point of view. And if he's speaking to Judeans, he's speaking to people with a different point of view. And Jesus, in the first instance, in the case of Galileans, always seems to have to lift them up and then... You know, encourage them from there, and with Judeans, he sort of has to mm-hmm. overcome this great bias that they have against people of the north. And candidly, the the Judeans in the south always seem to have more trouble accepting Jesus, mm-hmm. not just as somebody who made this pretty exotic claim, but as somebody who was from the north, who would make that sort of exotic claim. Who would think that a Messiah would come from a place with Galilee's backstory? You know, isn't the entire regional focus on Jerusalem, Bethlehem? you yeah, that's where we're looking for the plan of salvation to evolve. Why in the North? Mm-hmm. Why spend the bulk of your ministry up there in the North mm-hmm. where, you know, the expectations are lower? And yeah, lots of soil to turn there as we think about the gospel accounts. <laughs> when we understand the audience and where these things are happening, it really does fill in a little bit of mm-hmm. backstory that I think that inspired writers assume we have. Well, there's lots of Bible passages that we might say are passages of importance, but let me see if you can figure out which one I'm thinking about now. It has 26 words. (laughs) Nothing yet? Okay. And uh, (laughs) Martin Luther said about these words, it is the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. I'm gonna guess John three, sixteen. <laughs> and you win, Bill. Let me tell you what prizes we have for yeah, you no know. Behind <laughs> door number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about the second of our first places. You know, we're talking about five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus, and I'm gonna talk about his first meeting with a Pharisee in Jerusalem. This is John 3.16. And although that verse is so well known, I want to talk about its context. But lest we forget about the power of that verse, let's read it, shall we?
2: Sure. Yeah, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life.
1: So as a Bible geographer again, I'm going to take that really powerful, important verse and say, okay, where did it happen and why is that important to how I engage that particular piece of communication? And um, what we're going to look at is the context of this passage in the meeting with Nicodemus in Jerusalem. In our first program, we were talking a little bit about society's divisions in the first Mm -hmm. century, the difference between Galileans and Judeans. So, Let me add to that picture by saying we need to discriminate even between Jews who are living in Judea. There are some who are in a more elite class, and uh, we meet them in the Gospels as the Pharisees. What do you guys think of when you hear that word Pharisee?
4: I used to have a book in my library, and it was entitled The Pharisee's Guide to Total Holiness. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) that captures it for me. They were very strict, they were very committed to keeping Mosaic Law, and they were viewed as spiritual leaders.
3: And they held tightly to the hope and actually the belief that they could actually win God's great favor by keeping the law perfectly, which is why they had that that whole goal built, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, that's how they were going to be righteous.
2: And wasn't there some like kid saying about the Pharisees are fair you see and the Sadducees are sad or something like that? (laughs) Yeah, I I
1: recall that too. I'm not sure how theologically, geographically accurate that is. But in any (laughs) event, I'll add one thing to the very strong things that you've added, and that is you became a Pharisee by choice rather than by family relationship. And, you know, that's the difference between the Levites Mm. and the priests. You chose to become a Pharisee. And I think that's important, too. You chose this lifestyle, which, you know, invested you in this organization that had meetings that talked about how to do this well. And then you went around policing behavior in one another and in society. And often, I think, when we meet the Pharisees in the gospel, we meet them out there kind of policing folks around, right?
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a really important distinction, Jack, because... I think for a long time in my own journey uh, studying the Scriptures, I'd always assumed that the Pharisees were part of the priesthood, but actually most of the priests were Sadducees, weren't they? That is exactly
1: correct. Now, let me move this to the geography, right? Because we do meet Pharisees throughout the country, in the south as well as the north, but I'm zeroing in on Jerusalem here. And there's an important geographic connection with this group, particularly for those who fall into the subcategory of the Pharisees that we call the teachers of the law. And that's who Nicodemus is. That's where we're headed on this. Mm -hmm. Nicodemus, Pharisee, teacher of the law, Jerusalem. I put all of that together. You see, Jerusalem was sort of the educational center of the Jewish world and of the Pharisees. And the teachers of the law were the experts who... We're given the responsibility of instructing the instructors, the rabbis, teaching the teachers, if you will, and then giving them the authority or the credentialing to go out and to teach. Hmm. So when we are in Jerusalem with a teacher of the law, we are like embedded in this higher education system And now you have Jesus wandering into this story, you know, this guy from Nazareth who is holding out as a rabbi, but is uncredentialed by them. So that kind of puts me at least on the edge of my seat and goes, okay, well, how's this meeting gonna go? Because there's some tension in the
2: room. Yeah, so for us today, would it be like thinking about the setting of Oxford or Cambridge, like that type of educational, just if we think of like the most elite of the elite, when it comes to education, those are some of the names maybe we throw out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good analogy, Daniel, because we do have these sort of experts, and then we have those who are not considered experts. And, Mm -hmm. and the question, I think, that everybody would have in the first century that maybe you and I don't have as readily is, well, how is Jesus going to relate to this highly influential group? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Bill, you mentioned the Sadducees, the aristocratic priests. People did not so much look up to them Mm. and say, hey, we want our kids to grow up to be this. Well, uh, they looked up to the Pharisees, and as I think Elisa said, and this is really important too, that they viewed entry into the kingdom as something you did rather than the way you believed. I mean, there's a balance there, but they are clearly tipping the balance in the direction of what you did is what gained you acceptance before God and brought you into the kingdom. There's all of those little pieces that are standing around this story, and I think we won't fully get what is about to happen until we get them in place. Yeah, Yeah, good. Mm -hmm. So what does Jesus do? Jesus starts teaching the teacher. And if that hasn't set you back in your chair yet, realize Jesus is walking into the Harvard classroom as a blue-collar worker and saying, I have a question for you. And in the course of asking that question, Jesus is demonstrating that this teacher of the law, Nicodemus, has a whole lot to learn.
3: And actually, he's not walking into the room, is he, Jack? I mean, using that figuratively, you know, Nicodemus comes to him. That's right. Which isn't that kind of stunning and shocking that this teacher of the law himself would come to the uncredentialed Jesus, as you described him.
2: And we've talked about before how he comes at night. And in a shame-honor culture, if Nicodemus were to walk up to Jesus in the middle of the day in Jerusalem with a bunch of people around and ask a question— it would be questioning Jesus's honor. Let's see if he can win this honor-shame contest. Yeah. But by coming to him at night, there's a genuine desire to like, figure out who this Jesus is and what this Jesus has to say. And then, Jack, to your point, Jesus then asks him a question, which again is in this safety of nighttime. So Jesus isn't trying to dishonor him either, but invite him to consider something or learn something as well
1: that's so spot on and good, Daniel. I love all of that. And then Jesus comes around with the topic of being born again. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And that question takes us to the topic of how you enter the kingdom. Mm -hmm. And Nicodemus can't wrap his mind around this. Jack, does the timing of all of this dialogue between
4: Jesus and Nicodemus have anything to do with the fact that the event prior to this was Jesus cleansing the temple?
1: You know, I struggled just a little bit with John here, not in the sense of, well, I don't think John's getting things right. It's just the rhetorical way in which John writes. John seems to pull things out of chronological order at time Mm -hmm. to serve him well. I don't think the cleansing of the temple chronologically occurs before this. The other gospel writers put it at the end. John moves it up to the front. But I think from the rhetorical perspective, John is saying, look, I got to figure out for my readership how is it that Jesus is going to interact with the temple in Jerusalem and with the leaders there, whether they be the Sadducees, which is going to be the case with the temple markets, or with the Pharisees, as is the case with Nicodemus.
2: And I would say the question that Nicodemus asks Jesus back, what does it mean to be born again? It might be easy to kind of beat up Nicodemus and act like that question is, well, of course, Nicodemus, you should be able to figure it out. But I think if I'm honest, when I see that question i'm like i don't know how that works uh, <laughs> that doesn't uh-huh. make any sense to me either how in nicodemus's words how can i enter again into my mother's womb and be born a second time that doesn't seem like that's going to work out well
1: <laughs> and yet look at what he does in 3:10 jesus says you're israel's teacher and you don't understand these things mm. uh, so i don't think jesus is mocking him there so much as saying i want to reposition you in the kingdom's thought process here. I want you to realize Hmm. that although you think you're at your most mature form as one of these leading teachers of Israel, uh, you still have a lot to learn Hmm. from someone like me because of who I am. Then in that context that John lays out this beautiful verse, the purpose for Jesus coming, which is so striking. And let me just circle back if I could to the fact We're putting this in Jerusalem in this context of a Jerusalem educator who is a Pharisee. I imagine in my mind how the story of the Gospels would have been different had this very influential class of Pharisees owned the position of we have a lot to learn yet. Hmm. Yeah.
4: Hmm. And I wondered too, you know, when Nicodemus goes very hyper-literal about re-entering my mother's womb and being born again. I wonder if that's a reflection of the hyper-literal way in which they interpreted Moses' law, hmm. that that was just his help. way of normally thinking.
1: And to circle right back to Elisa's point, they thought it was more about doing than believing. Mm-hmm. And that is the big point of John 3.16, I think, as well. It's inverting this idea of the Pharisees, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him not who enacts all of this legislation. If we could just get the Pharisees, the educators in Jerusalem to understand that it's about believing more than doing, we would be so far along in bringing in the kingdom. And yet what do we read about in the gospels the rest of the way? Jesus is going to have this embattled relationship with most Pharisees, To be sure, Nicodemus gets it, but he's going to have this embattled relationship that goes on. And I think that's why it's so important that John puts this up front. We're talking about firsts, geographical firsts, and this is the first time Jesus is engaging with a Pharisee in Jerusalem. Oh, if only. This had gone better, and Jerusalem's Pharisees would have owned, as Nicodemus came to do, this reality that the kingdom is more about uh, believing than doing. What a different story the Gospels would tell. And, of course,
4: Nicodemus would assist Joseph of Arimathea in the burial of Jesus when that time came
1: three years later. Yep. You know, Nicodemus does attempt to persuade others Mm. in the Sanhedrin, Mm -hmm. but do you remember the response that he got? when he said to them hey you should give this guy a hearing and the response was are you a galilean too yeah
3: <laughs>
1: don't you realize that you know there's that regional bias that mm-hmm. really was a sticking point for so many judeans think again he's made the choice right he wasn't born a pharisee he made a choice to become a pharisee and he not only joined the organization, he became one of its teachers, right? Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel and you're not getting this stuff. He's challenging Nicodemus to give it a pause. Think about whether or not you're getting the fundamentals right because you're going to miss something if you don't. And it's that fundamental attribution of uh, the idea that the kingdom is more about doing than believing that just persistently interrupts the process of the Pharisees coming alongside Jesus. I mean, I look at that and I think, what amazing allies. If you could have gotten the pastors, the rabbis, right, in the local synagogues, this story would have looked so different. So I think John is setting us up right here in this Jerusalem story to understand what we're going to see going forward in Jesus' relationship with many of the Pharisees.
0: Geographical first in the life of Jesus from John chapter 3. Jesus' first meeting with a Pharisee and the significance of his meeting with Nicodemus being in the city of Jerusalem. Well, in the next part of the conversation, Jack takes us to a location that is, well, somewhat complicated.
1: In the Old Testament, this is called Shechem. In the New Testament, Sychar, subsequently when the Romans about the second century relabel it Neapolis, and today it's known as Nablus. Hmm. Same place.
0: Yeah, but Jack says that this is the place that has been awaiting the longest for Jesus to come, the next geographical first in the life of Jesus after a quick break. Our Daily Bread Ministries has recently done some fascinating video work with Jack that I want to make you aware of. On our Our Daily Bread Ministries YouTube channel right now, we have two seasons of The Holy Land with Jack Beck, in which he takes you on fascinating journeys connecting the land with the stories of the Bible. Stunning footage and insight from Jack make each of the episodes in these two seasons so worth watching. Having gotten a no-jack during our conversations here on Discover the Word, I think you'll be captured by the geography's influence on the story of the Bible. Look for the Holy Land series on the Our Daily Bread YouTube channel. Seasons 1 and 2 are there right now, and Season 3 has been filmed and is in production right now and scheduled to be released later this fall. Can't recommend it highly enough. Seeing the things that we're talking about That's another dimension to what Jack is so passionate about. And so check it out, the Holy Land series on the Our Daily Bread YouTube channel. And now the next geographical first in the life of Jesus as Jack takes us to this location that has had several labels or names over the years.
1: I don't recall a time in my life when differences between people seem to make such a big difference. Did anybody else have that
4: feeling? I understand what you're saying, but I remember back in the 60s when, uh, mm. when differences really made a big difference in how you viewed the war in Vietnam and hmm. how you viewed civil rights and how you viewed the establishment versus the younger generation that was coming up. I know what you're saying. I think today maybe it's more aggravated by the immense amount of media – that keeps reminding us of all the differences.
2: And maybe the access that media gives us to differences that Mm -hmm. maybe in the past we didn't have. Because I think for me, thinking about that, obviously I wasn't around in the 60s. But growing up, I was in very tight, bubbles community-wise. So I didn't really interact with people that thought that differently from me very much. And it wasn't until as I went to college and then in different settings after that, that I started having people in my community that we saw things very differently. And then when Facebook started, Mm. all of a sudden I had access not only to people that I directly knew of people that I didn't even know who had strong opinions about things and then at some point we all decided that the best place to share those differences was on Facebook which is not maybe a good idea Mm. but I wonder if that's part of what we feel Mm -hmm. too is the way we share about what we think or what we're passionate about or whatever opens up the door to be pretty rude and disrespectful and disagreeable with one another even people we don't know very well
3: there's a way in which um, I think Daniel, we have swung from an emphasis on tolerating and including various viewpoints to dissing them, you know. And and I think you know part of these swings are just inevitable in our culture of humankind. But I think we're maybe at a pinnacle of intolerance, where we were trying to go towards tolerance as a culture. It's fascinating to look at.
4: Yeah, I think one of the big differences is that back in the '60s. The disagreements and differences were largely institutional, and now largely because of social media, it's much more personal.
3: That's interesting.
1: And that really is the issue in our next geographical first in the life of Jesus. I think it's part of human nature and part of the human experience to notice those differences and because we're sin-ruined people, to even grade ourselves over against one another. And we certainly see that in play here. Jesus' first meeting with a Samaritan and a Samaritan woman, I might add, at Sychar, really a story to which John gives lots of space in John chapter four. I think there's a verse at the beginning and a couple at the end that will help us. John 4, 4, and then complement that with John four twenty five and 26. Shall we read those?
3: I'll get them. Now, he had to go through Samaria, meaning Jesus. So he had to go through Samaria. And then you said 25 and 26. Mm-hmm. So that would be God is spirit, And his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us.
1: Well, there's just so many things in this story. (laughs) We could spend hours and hours and hours talking about it. But I'm going to zero in a little bit on the geography. And let's start with the idea of Samaria. Uh, Samaria is a Roman district that resides between the two districts we've talked about in our first two programs. Galilee is in the north, Mm -hmm. Samaria sandwiched in the middle, Judea in the south. So our focus is on the middle. The people who live there are known as Samaritans. What do you guys know about them? Well,
2: even just their name comes after the city Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel back when the kingdom split. And part of the ugly history of Israel is not only did they end up with two different capitals, but in Samaria there was another temple that was built at one point. And often the rhythm that the Old Testament repeats over and over again is, and then the new king in Samaria did not follow the way of God. In fact, what he did was, evil in the sight of the Lord, and often that was because of the worship of other gods, which included child sacrifice, and just so many layers, but all of that is tied to this region in Samaria. Yeah.
1: So as an Old Testament reader, I already tip negative from the yeah. time that there's Jewish people in the space, but that constituency changes after 722 yeah. BC when the Assyrian Empire comes in. What happens then?
4: The Assyrians come in, and they take a portion of the population back to Assyria, But the remaining population ends up intermarrying with the Assyrian occupiers, and it's this mixed-race group that becomes called Samaritans, which to the Jews who did all these genealogies because they valued pure blood so much, that was maybe the ultimate negative against the Samaritans is that they were no
1: longer purely Jewish. And if you were living in Galilee and thought less of by Judeans. For rank ordering people in terms of first century perspective, Judeans saw themselves as number one, Galileans a distant second, Samaritans somewhere way, way down the, the list. Even though they share these regional borders, there is this cultural and theological difference between them. If you were either from Judea or Galilee and Jewish, you tended not to look very kindly on Samaritans. So when we walk into this story, John 4, and think of where we've been so far, we've had a Galilee story, we've had a Jerusalem-Judea story, and now we're going into Samaria. That's a bit of a surprise, particularly, at least you read the words, it's necessary, die in Greek. Uh, There's a sense of urgency, necessity about Jesus going into this space, even though the road systems didn't demand it. Uh, He did not have to physically move through this space. He had other alternatives, but made a choice to do so. And that raises some questions like, well, what's he going to accomplish? What's going to happen here? You know, as a Bible geographer, this is the question I ask. What's going to happen here that's unique, different, and couldn't happen somewhere else? So let's dig into that and see how this first trip to Samaria is unique or different. To summarize this, there's a look back and a look forward. Let's see what the story does by way of looking back. Did you notice some of the look-back language in this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan
2: woman? There's lots of it. Now I've put you on the spot, haven't I? (laughs) Well, you mentioned when you were setting up this story, you emphasized that this is in Sychar. Mm Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, and typically I don't notice it, but when I hang out with you, I notice (laughs) things like that. (laughs) And so I'm guessing maybe that's where it starts, because they go straight into a reminder of that Jacob's well was there, and then Joseph is mentioned. So that's a little bit of the look back, I'm guessing. But I'm guessing that's connected to Sychar?
1: Yeah, so when we hear the New Testament label Sychar, we don't hear the Old Testament label Shechem. (laughs) and Shechem and Sychar share a position in a mountain pass between Mount Evil and Gerizim. So even though those two labels seem to have no relationship to one another, and I might not think a Shechem story is related to a Sychar story, the very fact that you have a new label for a place that had a different label in the Old Testament, that can get in the way of what we're trying to do here. So let's make sure and establish that Shechem of the Old Testament is Sychar of the New Testament.
3: Okay. Is this a language thing? Is this a Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic thing? or
1: It's not so much that. It's simply the fact that place names changed. Okay. And so let me give you a chain, Elisa, that will make you even more frustrated. In the Old <laughs> Testament, this is called Shechem. In the New Testament, Sychar. Subsequently, when the Romans, about the 2nd century, relabel it Neapolis, and today it's known as Nablus. Hmm. Same place. Hmm. Same place, just different label.
4: But like you say, place names change. And sometimes, as you described, they change based on who's in charge. I remember being in South Africa shortly after apartheid Hmm. was removed. And they were in the process of changing a lot of the Afrikaner street names to street names that reflected the more tribal African heritage that was
2: more historic. Yeah. And so I guess in this story, what's happening is maybe that's part of what John's doing is helping us out, because we might not make that leap from Shechem to Sychar. So he's like, and in case you don't know, that's near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Mm -hmm. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus tired out by his journey is sitting by that well.
1: Yeah, it's like, just in case, you're exactly right, Daniel, just in case your geography's a little rusty, let me help you put this back. Now, let me ask you another question. Give me some religious centers for Judaism that you know of, labels. If you were to think of what were the important religious centers of the Jewish world, what labels would you give me?
4: I would give you the Temple Mount in Jerusalem.
1: Got to start there, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody knows Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. You know another one? I'm thinking of where the tabernacle was. Shiloh. Shiloh, yes. Uh So we've got Shiloh that's functioning as a religious center. Ready for this? Before there was Jerusalem, before there was Shiloh, there was Shechem. And for 700 years, the Old Testament regards that as the religious pilgrimage site to go. Hmm. And it's because of the first event that occurred there. In Genesis twelve one through 7, the Lord moves Abraham and Sarah out of uh, Haran and tells them, I'm taking you to a land that I will show you. And when they get to the mountain pass where Shechem was located, ancient Shechem is located, he said, I'm giving you this land hmm. right here. And Abram builds an altar there and worships. And from that moment on, for the next 700 years, that becomes the place of religious pilgrimage. It becomes a place where the promises of God go to ground, where people went to think about what the plan of salvation was going to look like. And think about what that means in terms of Jesus' arrival there. He goes to the place that had been waiting for him mm. the longest in the Holy Land. No place. No place had waited longer for his arrival than Shechem, And then what does he do there? Something he almost never does. He says, and Elisa, you read the words, Jesus is involved in this exchange with the Samaritan woman, and it travels around a bit, right? It travels all <laughs> over the place. And where I chuckle is this poor lady is trying to keep changing the topic <laughs> because yep. it keeps infiltrating places that are uncomfortable to her. And finally, she lands on the thing that she thinks is going to shut the whole conversation down and say, you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll clear this all up for us, right? <laughs> Isn't that a conversation stopper? <laughs> Just wait till God shows up. He'll tell us what we ought to. And Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Mm -hmm. I'm the Messiah. Now, if I think about it, there's only one other place I can think of in the Gospels where he says it that baldly in that clear language, I, the one speaking to you, am he. And he chooses to do it at the place that he had waited longest for his arrival. And I think that's part of the die, the necessity. He had to go into this space. But I think there's not only a look back, but a look forward. And that'll circle back to what we were talking earlier about relationships between people. Where do you expect conversion to Jesus uh, as the Messiah, people to own and believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, I would expect it in a place like Jerusalem, mm. Judea. Mm-hmm. I would expect it in a place like Galilee. Mm-hmm. And yet, right as John is getting started with his firsts, he goes to Samaria And shows that those people are part of the kingdom, despite the fact that we think they're different Mm -hmm. and maybe not so acceptable.
4: Hmm. And that'll get echoed when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Acts and says, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, Mm -hmm. and to the uttermost parts of the earth.
2: And I pick up there as well, the look back, look forward. By going that far back in history, by picking up on that thread of the story, Jesus is going back to before there was this big division in Israel between people. And that echoes forward to one of the themes in the New Testament is becoming one family unified together, regardless of difference Mm -hmm. around the cross, the resurrection, and the new life that Jesus offers. And
1: what I love about that,
2: Daniel, is think of what Jesus is doing. He's establishing an expectation for
1: the disciples and for us too. And that is that the kingdom is often bigger than we think. (laughs) I struggle with that sometimes because I like the kingdom that looks like me. I like church that looks like me. And I forget that Jesus is breaking through gender and ethnic barriers, regional barriers. He is simply reshaping perspective. And look what John does right out of the gate. Among the firsts is he says, I'm going to show you what the gospel does in the life of a woman That's a pretty big thing Mm -hmm, right there mm -hmm. in the case of somebody who is ethnically Samaritan and in the case even of someone with a pretty tarnished moral backstory. If everybody I see in this story is going to be somebody who is part of that kingdom, and what does Jesus say when the disciples question, you know, what are we doing here? Maybe we should get moving. And they end up staying a couple of days. Jesus says, you know, remember the saying, it's still four months until the harvest? He says, look around. Look around where you are in Samaria the fields are white under the harvest. That language is showing how inclusive the ministry of Jesus is, how far-reaching the ministry is. It's simply a reminder to me, as I begin reading the Gospel of John, get ready, because this Gospel of forgiveness is about to reach through all of those barriers that we'd like to erect between ourselves, whether they're in the ancient world or the modern world. I give up. That was easy. <laughs> yeah, I gave up on golf. I don't know what you guys gave oh, up, wow. but I gave up on golf. I really tried. I really, really tried. But you know, the expectation that I would set for myself was always well beyond my skill level, <laughs> and it just got so frustrating for me. I sort of, uh, yeah. Clubs are still downstairs. I suppose one of these days I'll pull them out <laughs> again. But. Yeah, have you guys given up on anything? Yeah,
3: I gave up on math, totally. I just use a calculator. And most of the time I have to look up what's the formula I'm supposed to use, like especially in percents. I always get lost on percents.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to meet somebody who gave up. Did they give up on golf? <laughs> Did they give up on golf? No, Bill, sorry, but thank you for interposing a an unthinkable reality into the New <laughs> Testament gospel text. We're going to be looking at John 5, and if you guys have been observing, we've kind of moved John 2, John 3, John 4. I mean, we're just kind of moving through these firsts, and we've been looking at geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. In this case, in John 5, we have the first detailed miracle John reports In Jerusalem, the first detailed miracle, I have to say that because there's someone who's listening really carefully here and going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I read earlier that there were some things that Jesus did there that made people surprised, but nothing in detail. So... Hmm. I'm sticking by my story. This is the first detailed miracle that we see. And John does some work in order to position this at the Bethesda pools. We'll talk about them in a moment. But let's go to the core of the story, John 5, 6, and 7, if we could read that together.
2: Sure, I can get it. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Yeah. We'll come to that. We'll come to that. His
1: expectations and his request of Jesus. But let me take you, first of all, to the setting. John, like I said, spend some time dealing with this Bethesda pool thing. And in the times that I'm in Israel and I have the chance to bring groups to this space, almost everyone is shocked by what they see. Have any of you been to the Bethesda pools? We didn't go Mm -hmm. there in my trips. Yeah, well— The expectation, I think, that people have is it's a public swimming pool.
3: Oh, really? Wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. But it's a water reservoir. Yeah. And because folks may have a picture of the story, they also don't picture it as large and as deep as it is. It goes on for about 5,000 square feet. It's a massive, massive reservoir. And this is the part that bothers them in particular, because they know the story, is that it's about 40 feet deep.
3: So you have to be able to swim to go into it. Yeah, it's
1: great for collecting water from the edges, but not so great, you know, <laughs> yeah. for folks to jump in. And and uh, it, it had this infrastructure built. I mean, we can see the pools today, but there was this infrastructure, John says, that there were uh, colonnaded porches, shade porches built around the perimeter. And then there was a dam that ran the center between these pools. And there was a colonnaded porch down that. And that helps us establish the the setting. But here's what John, I think, expects us to know that we don't. And that is we're about 100 yards from the temple in Jerusalem, and that's going to be critical, I think, to our understanding the story. So what do you folks recall about this context? Who's there uh, if they're not getting water? It says there are
4: crowds of sick people there who are kind of just loitering around the edges of the reservoir.
3: And something happens to the water, you picture it like a spring or something, it begins to move or bubble up, and at that moment you're supposed to get into the water
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm.
3: to be healed, right?
1: So there is a local superstition. Later on, it gets co-opted into a Roman pagan site uh, associated with the healing deity, Asclepius. But in this case, we're, I think, talking about a, a popular superstition that if you were disabled or harmed in some way and you could get into water when it was stirred, that something positive would happen to your health, that you would be healed. And so we have a picture not of people coming to the water reservoir to get water, although they certainly were there, but lots of folks who were there who were disabled and who were hoping against hope that they might be healed.
4: Now, Jack, in the majority text, which the King James and the New King James are based on, it inserts a little explanatory statement that they believed that an angel would come and stir the water, and that's what would give it some kind of healing capacity. Is that part of that superstition you're talking about?
1: Yeah, again, and I want to be sensitive and cautious at two levels here. One is, you know, the question about whether or not that verse actually was part of the original inspired text. I think there's a question there that needs to be handled. And so even if it is there, I would say sometimes the Bible doesn't report an authentic reality, but a projected reality, a suspicion that people had, a perspective that people had. And in that case, I would describe it in exactly the way you did, Bill, that they believed an angel was the product of stirring that water and that it would actually bring healing. That's the perspective. So as we move into the story and look at this disabled man, we talked about giving up on things uh, and giving up on golf is one thing. This guy had given up on God. That's what I see. Where do you see that? I see that because of where he is. He is about 100 yards from the temple, the place where the Lord has said, look, I am going to make my presence felt here in a special way. I want you to bring your problems, troubles, difficulties, and challenges to me. And in this place, in the temple, is where I would like you to come and seek the sort of thing that you need, like healing right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not where we find him. Instead, we find him buying into or at least defaulting into the superstition at the Bethesda pools. What happens when Jesus comes up to him? Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me how often in other gospel stories, we hear people with physical problems calling out to Jesus, begging him, please help me, make me well, Uh, take away the leprosy, take away the, the blindness. At first, the guy doesn't address Jesus as someone who could help him, And so Jesus comes to him and says, look, can I help you? Mm -hmm. I mean, okay, here we go. Here's the offer. Here's the Son of God opening uh, the treasure box for you. Ask, and I will give it to you. And he says, yeah, you can help me. Help me get in the water when it's stirred,
3: Because I'm going to trust in the water, not directly ask you. It also strikes me, uh, Jack, that he hasn't totally given up or wouldn't he have gone home? He's like maybe shifted his hope from our god to superstition but he still he still has a little bit
1: he's hopeful uh, but i think again where is his hope and what is he sort of mm-hmm. given up on his location at the pools rather than at the temple suggests to me he may have tried i think john includes this piece of data in the, in the report, this guy had been in this disabled condition for 38 years. Mm-hmm. Has a long time. And I can only imagine that for some of that time, he had gone to the temple and asked the Lord, prayed for healing. And now he says, uh, what, what's the use? I'm going to give up on that. And I'm just going to go here. And then when Jesus himself asks him, Hey, can I help you with this? Now you can help me get in the water. I mean, this is somebody who, who seems to me to uh, have sort of given up on the sorts of things that could most help him. But here's what I find so powerful, that Jesus hadn't given up on him,
3: mm-hmm.
1: right? We sometimes get into this this relational thing where we think, God gives up, I give up on God and God gives up on me, that that's that's the way it works. Or God gave up on me, so I gave up on him. And so it, it's that sort of back and forth. But I think it speaks a powerful way to me because as I look at this, even though there are times I can look at in my life where I go, wow, I, God, I don't know where you are.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I don't get your absence. I don't get the lack of response that I want to my prayer. I'm just going to give up and try to do it some other way. Yeah. Uh, This story just comes back to me again and again and reminds Hmm. me, hey, Hmm. God doesn't give up on you even when you give up on him. So yet again, another geographic first uh, in the life of Jesus as recorded by John, his first detailed miracle in Jerusalem. We read about it in John chapter 5. And what I find personally so very powerful in this is the message that we may give up on God in our weakness. We may give up on God but Jesus never
0: gives up on us. Important lesson in this story of Jesus healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And where he did it and when he did it on the Sabbath are key parts of the story for us to understand. Making geography meaningful, that's what Jack Beck is doing with us again in this edition of the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, and Daniel Ryan Day. And in just a moment, they will wrap up this week's study by taking a trip to the place Jesus grew up and talking about a a homegoing of sorts, his first and only visit to the town of Nazareth. So how did it turn out? Were he and his message welcomed by the hometown folks? Well, it's the final destination in the series called Five Geographical Firsts in the Life of Jesus. And it's coming up after this preview of what the group will study in our next podcast. Life is full of pivotal beginning points. The day you began school, the day you started college. If you're married, your first date with your spouse was a beginning. First day of a new job, the birth of a child, first day as an empty nester, first day of retirement. Yeah, life is full of beginning points. And uh, next time on the Discover the Word podcast, Bill Crowder is going to lead a study with a group called Jesus Began.
4: I want us to think about beginnings this week because I want us to look at a phrase that repeats itself in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's a phrase, Jesus Began. That's the phrase that kind of keeps popping up in one form or another that I think gives us movement and pulls us through the story that Matthew's telling.
0: So be part of the group for that series Jesus Began, next time on the Discover the Word podcast. And now the conclusion of our conversation with Jack Beck and the fifth geographical first in the life of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of John.
4: Well, Jack, it's certainly been good to have you back again, man. And thanks for coming out of the woods
2: long enough to talk with us a little bit. (laughs) Every time you join us, I always remember like, I remember enjoying last time he was here. And then as we get deeper and deeper in, I'm like, man, Mm -hmm. I see all these new words on the page of my Bible that Mm -hmm. I have been neglecting since the last time you came. (laughs) And it's all these places and interesting themes that I mean, the story of place in the Bible tells the story of the Bible. I always forget that until you join us again. So thank you for that reminder.
3: It does. It's this lasting impression of we need to always say, where is this happening? And it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, one of those essential questions to ask as we begin to read something in Scripture. Where are we?
4: Where are we? Yeah, so you've been taking us through a bunch of geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. So what is the last first that you want to talk
1: with us about this time? (laughs) Yeah, well, the last of the five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus that I'd like to explore with you is Jesus first, and by all accounts, maybe his only returned to his hometown in Nazareth. Uh, Luke chapter 4:14 4, through 30 is where we're going to be. This is a Nazareth story and a place is absolutely vital to our communication and to the communication of the Bible. And I always want to ask the question, where am I? And what's about to happen here that couldn't happen in the same way somewhere else? So uh, let's dig into this. The verse that I think will be the one to focus on for us is Luke four twenty nine. Shall we read that
3: together? Sure. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff.
2: Yeah, and in verse 28, right before that, it says that they were furious and full of rage. <laughs> Welcome home. <laughs> yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah, there's nothing like going home. I mean, I I love I love going home and having that sense of being around familiar places and people and I think part of that is just that I expect good positive things not someone ready to throw me off the top of a ridge. And that Leads me to ask the question, well, what's going on in Nazareth that led this hometown to respond in the way they did to Jesus? Well, what's interesting to me is as we work our way through this story, there are a couple of positive responses and then a pretty dramatic negative response as well. Okay, what are they responding to, Jack? Yeah, so they invite Jesus to come into their synagogue to speak. And he's going to be handed a a scroll, and he opens the scroll, reads a portion from Isaiah, sits down, and then the expectation is you're going to speak on this text. And so he reads language uh, from Isaiah uh, 61, 1 and 2, or at least most of it, as we'll see in a moment, and says today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing this is an anticipatory prophecy about the coming of the messiah Mm -hmm. and essentially when jesus sits down to deliver the sermon he delivers the sermon like no one else could on this language by saying this is me yeah i think
4: it's real interesting that luke positions this right after jesus is tempted in the wilderness by satan do you see any connection between those
1: Well, I think all of those temptations, in my view, Bill, are meant to kind of tear down this association between Jesus and the Father to show that this couldn't possibly be – I mean, Satan is trying to demonstrate that this is not the real deal and not somebody you can put your confidence and faith in and, of course, fails at every turn.
4: So it's almost as if in the temptations, Satan is trying to destroy Jesus in one way, And then in Nazareth, the people try to destroy him in a different way.
3: And maybe one of the threads is um, God can't be controlled. You know, Satan is trying to control when Jesus steps into his identity. And the people are uncomfortable with Jesus' choice to step into his identity there. Mm
2: -hmm. But there's some key ideas, too, in between the two, right? Where in verses 14 and 15 of 4, it talks about... Jesus going throughout Galilee and teaching in synagogues, and he was praised by everyone. So we can maybe even assume that the miracle that we talked about at the beginning of this series in Cana of Galilee of turning water into wine, his reputation is going before him now and people are excited. And Mm -hmm. then he gets to his hometown and that's when things seem to change.
3: And even at first, in verse 22 of uh, Luke 4, everybody spoke well of him, and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So there's an initial very positive response.
1: Think back to when we made our visit to Nazareth earlier in this program. Uh, Nazareth of Galilee is not a place that you expected great things from. Mm -hmm. It was forgotten and forgettable. And imagine the Messiah. Coming from our little hamlet up here in Galilee, there was justifiable pride and hopefulness Mm -hmm. that we see initially. But that turned south really quickly on these guys um, because when he read Isaiah 61, he left a phrase out, the one that talked about divine vengeance divine vengeance. And then when we look at the traditional understanding of what that vengeance was about in the Aramaic Targums, it was vengeance directed at Gentiles, non-Jewish peoples. So when Jesus sits down to speak about this, he first of all says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has come. My expectation would be now we're going to hear about the rooting out of that Gentile community that we don't like, the Roman world that has invaded and occupied our space and made life so difficult for us. They're expecting Jesus as the Messiah from Nazareth now who's going to clean up this problem, and what he does is just the opposite. Mm -hmm. Who does he mention?
4: Yeah, he mentions the widow of Zarephath from the Elijah story, and he mentions Naaman from the Elisha stories Mm -hmm. as two Gentiles that God included in the place of blessing.
3: (laughs) And all the people are furious (laughs) when they heard this, and they got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff.
1: Yeah, this triggered them, didn't Mm -hmm. it? I mean, Mm -hmm. it it triggered. Everything seemed to be going so well up to the (laughs) moment that Jesus replaced the idea of vengeance of the Lord with the grace of God, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And the extension of grace into the life of Gentiles. That was not the kingdom they expected. That was
2: not the kingdom they wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are the stories we don't talk about anymore, Jesus. Yeah. Those are the ones we ignore. And isn't that selectiveness still very much
1: a part of totally. our lives mm-hmm. too? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are people who I see as outside of the reach of help and hope. I mean, I'd like to not say that. I'd like to say that, no, no, I believe everyone. And I'll even say that everybody's involved. But but there's a part of me that always wants to recoil from that yeah. and say, Everybody except that person or that person. Or that group. And this is an incredibly helpful corrective. I don't want to get on the wrong side of history here. I don't want to get on the wrong side of divine grace here. Certainly there is room for judgment and it will happen at the Lord's whim. And when he knows it's the correct thing, To do, but I dare not be the one who says, I'll be the arbiter who who gets the divine judgment and who gets the divine grace. For me, I'm looking at this and saying, I'm going to err on the side of divine grace.
4: And in the series of stories you've talked us through, it seems like this fits perfectly with what we saw in John 4 of the woman at the well in Sychar, because it shows Jesus including the outsider when the people would have been very much more comfortable isolating the outsider.
1: Yeah, and isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't demur, he doesn't recoil from going to the hard thing with the hometown (laughs) crowd? I mean, it would have been easy to go, let me just leave it at this today. Today these words are fulfilled in your hearing. And the cheers go up and everybody's (laughs) clapping him on the back, and you go, yeah, I'm just going to leave it there. He knew he had to move these folks' perspective for them to see the kingdom as God saw the kingdom, And so Luke takes us Mm. with Jesus on this first. And again, the gospel writers report no other return to Nazareth.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, The absence of that is pretty striking Mm -hmm. to me after this. Was this their one opportunity to get it right? Was this their one opportunity to fix their perspective on the kingdom? And that challenges me too.
3: It does challenge me as well, but I'm also very struck by Jesus' focus and his intentionality in verse 30. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They were all ready to throw him off a cliff, furious about his words. There's a way in which he spoke the truth, and his words could linger, and anyone at any time could reconsider their position. And he went on his way, his continued mission. To bring all to God. And I love that, you know, the words linger even when he has fulfilled the, the moment of presenting them, his words linger.
4: And it's interesting, Elisa, to your point, that the way Luke describes the scene is everybody spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words uh-huh. that he had spoken. And by not speaking of judgment and condemnation, uh-huh. he was
2: speaking of grace. Yep, and speaking of geography, he mentions to them as things start to heat up that they're gonna say, "We wish you would do here the things you did in Capernaum." Yeah. And then in verse thirty-one, right after this story, he goes to Capernaum, mm-hmm. and so here he was ready to do the things that they will later wish that he had done, but because of the way that they respond, they end up missing out on what he ends up. Doing in other places.
1: Yeah, this is a Nazareth story, isn't it? It's a story that's uniquely linked to this space, Jesus' hometown, to the observant Jewish world that thought the kingdom was only about them. Uh, and it's a story, as you said, thematically that occurs in other places. I think it's as powerful here as any place. Mm. Because these are folks who knew Jesus the best. Uh, These are folks who may have expected this young man to return to his community often and to bless them as he has blessed others. But their rejection of him ended up leaving them without the things that others enjoyed. Five geographical firsts in the life of Jesus. I love digging into these place stories.
0: Another great visit with Jack Beck, talking about the connection between the geography of and the story of the Bible. Fascinating stuff once again. You're listening to the Discover the Word podcast with Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and our guest, Bible geography expert, Dr. Jack Beck, as they wrapped up our time together with an incident that shows that the saying, there's no place like home, isn't always true in the good sense. Nazareth, was the final destination of this week's series called Five Geographical Firsts in the Life of Jesus. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the Scriptures, challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And Discover the Word is part of Our Daily Bread Ministries, where for the last 80 plus years, we've been telling the story of Jesus thanks to the financial partnership of listeners and friends who share our mission, and that is to make the life-changing story and wisdom of the Bible understandable and accessible to people all around the world. And so if you'd like to give a one-time gift or give a recurring monthly gift as a Discover the Word partner, well, just click on the donate button at discovertheword.org. You can give safely and securely right there at discovertheword.org. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hettinger. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.